Good evening. This is kind of weird, I mean, being this far away, but I'm glad I'm here, I'm glad we're here, and I'm glad we can study the Word together. A friend asked me about a week or so ago, so how goes the preparation, of the writing for your Bible study talk? And I said, well, it feels like it's been difficult for me to just sit down and write. Um, I said, I feel kind of restless. And of course she said, why are you restless? I'm like, it's been a very interesting time, the last two to three months or so, we are in the middle of putting in a, like a, we had a small bathroom and we had to kind of, or we pushed out the walls and we have a, trying to get a bigger bathroom. So that's kind of a bathroom redo. And I've had some pain in my knees and feet and found out I have osteoarthritis, which I was hoping they'd just give me a pill or something. But, you know, you start at a different place. And I've been going to PT for the last two months or so or more. And then because of the bathroom, we had to move down into the guest room and share the bathroom with our boarder. We have a boarder and... You know, he's wonderful, but that's, you know, a little bit different. And then I can't ever tell when I'm downstairs, sleeping downstairs, because we don't have a bathroom upstairs near the bedroom, where my clothes are, sort of. So the house is, you know, just, Meredith said, to say everything's everywhere. Everything's everywhere. And, um, yeah, we're uh, celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary next week. So it was kind of hard, challenging with COVID to figure out how can we do this or what do we do to be able to do something. Um, so when I told her this stuff that's going on, I said, I feel like when I say restless, like everything's going around and around, but nothing's ever really moving forward or getting accomplished. That's how it feels to me. And this friend said, well, probably some of that restlessness, that feeling that everything's kind of unfinished could just be part of COVID. What's your feeling? I'm sure other people feel it. I thought, well, that's true, but it is interesting when you're looking at time, when you're thinking and looking about time how that can affect you. So in this chapter, chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark, Mark is addressing some timing issues as he sets the scene for the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And as we're going to go through this first half chapter um, of chapter half of chapter 1, I hope we'll see God is working out his will in his timing. And I want to sort of put a concept before you We're going to get to this in verse 15. It's my favorite part of the chapter. I would say it's sort of the epicenter of the chapter, verse verse 15, um, where it talks about, it has this phrase. um, In the NIV, I think it says, uh, the time has come. That's, That's big, but I like how it says in the ESV even better. The time is fulfilled. And the reason I say that's the epicenter because that's really what's what's happening in the big picture of biblical history. Like this is happening now that Jesus is going to begin, be inaugurated into this ministry. And the reason I, I love that that phrase is in the Greek that word. Not that I can remember any Greek, but I read this in the commentaries. That word is kairos, and for time. And that kairos. Um, Edwards, one of the commentators said, this is God's critical or opportune moment um, where God is acting and his will is going to be done in this big way. So the reason I'm em- emphasizing or bringing up this Kairos timing is because what I'd love for you to notice as we go through the passage is, so what's the Kairos time, you know, God's huge sort of momentous timing with John the Baptist? Uh, what's the Kairos time as you see Jesus um, going to be baptized and then be tempted in the wilderness? What's God's Kairos timing for the disciples? 
And now this is not, those words are not used many times in there. I'm just saying, think of the concept of chronos time would be this. You know, what time is it? But, but kairos time is God's timing. And then lastly, we're going to talk just briefly about what are God's, like what and where are God's kairos times or, or opportune moments in our lives and how do you respond or how do I respond? How do we respond? So in other words, as we're noticing God working out his redemptive plans through Christ in this chapter, I hope it will help us to know, notice not just what God's doing in redemptive history then, but what is God bringing about through Christ for us at such a time as this? I even hope that whatever you're dealing with in the midst of this COVID time, we can remember and believe God is always present with us always actively working out his will, and always dealing with us in love. It's not what I was thinking, like nothing ever changes, goes round and round, you know, is anything going to happen and be accomplished? God is accomplishing much. So we're going to start just looking at verse 1. That first word um, in Greek is just beginning. And, And I love the fact that he says it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the good news of Jesus Christ, because there's so much that's that's happening, but this is saying, this again is this uh, inauguration. This is where it all starts. And um, again, uh, I love this commentator, James Edwards. I'm going to quote him a couple times. For Mark, he says, for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus Christ, a new creation is now at hand. Um, it's like in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that verse you probably have heard. You know, if anyone is in Christ, they are what? A new creation. And so this is talking about this. It's like the dawn of salvation coming. It's kind of a big thing. And he immediately goes to two Old Testament prophets, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Isaiah 40, verse 3, to ensure that the hearers know that this coming of Messiah has always been the Father's plan. Um, Edward says again, this is a good quote, Jesus is not an afterthought of God as though an earlier plan of salvation had somehow gone awry. Rather, Jesus stands in continuity of all the work of God in Israel for Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and all the prophets. And Jesus says that, doesn't he, in, in later in um, the gospel. So, so these prophets, these prophecies are given to show that you know, this is something that's happened from long ago, and also it always was uh, prophesied that the Messiah would have a forerunner, a messenger, to announce his coming. And John the Baptist is such a messenger. Um, in Luke one seventeen, it says, "This is the what the arch, the angel Gabriel gave to Zechariah, John's father, and he, which is John, shall go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah." And then it says some other things. Then it says, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So again, you know, way before John was born, this was his, in a sense, anointing, or this was his call. And then John lives his life, and we don't know what happens, but he's come at this time because it's his time, this Kairos time. This is John's Kairos time to begin to go into the river, Jordan, and to to baptize people. And he's all about baptism. And, and what does that mean? Well, baptism um, is all about, you know, you picture the water and someone going under and coming up. It's all about a uh, repentance 
of saying my old life, I'm going to leave the old life, and I'm going to have a new life where I'm consecrated to God. So, and it's also a picture of cleansing. And why was this? In um, the NIV, I like the NIV study Bible a lot. It has these interesting notes. It says, if you go back to Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, this phrase, prepare the way and make straight the paths, is really talking about a road that goes into a town, clearing all the obstacles out of it. And why? They would do that because there would be a king visiting. And they wanted to have a, a procession where the king came into town, so they're clearing out the road. And that clearing the way, making a way, is also um, just another another pers- perspective or a picture of cleansing. Because John baptized with water in the Jordan to symbolize moral and spiritual transformation as people were coming into covenant with God. So this was, again, in a sense, John's time, Kairos time, to announce the the nearness of the coming Messiah and to warn any who were looking for him, which there were people who were, that they must make themselves ready uh, by a turning away from self and sin, a change of their minds and hearts, and to turn to God for forgiveness. So you can just imagine, or maybe you need to imagine, this, this, the prophets, you know, hadn't spoken, I, I think it's like 400 years. Uh, the last time was when, um, Malachi was at the time of Nehemiah, and that was when all the, the um, it was a miracle that all the, um, Jewish believers could come back to Jerusalem and start to build the temple. It's been about 400 years, that intertestamental period. So for centuries, uh, the Jewish people had been without a prophet to proclaim God's word to the people. So you can imagine they say, oh, but there is a prophet. There's this prophet. He's just like Elijah, and he's out in the desert. So people were very, very curious to see and to hear what John was proclaiming. And um, they were probably, as I said, on the lookout for, do you think this could be the Messiah? I mean, they're, they're curious about that. So it says in the scripture, and, and one of the people... Well, I think it was in the NIV. It says, this is hyperbole, but it says, and the whole Judean countryside came, and all the people of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if all of them came, but there were a lot. And it was like a revival. It was like this big deal, of a revival coming. And um, what did they see? Well, John was in the mold of Elijah because he's wearing the animal skins and the leather belt. He's got the, he's got the um, Old Testament prophet, you know, dress. He's doing the Old Testament prophet eating, locusts. I guess that's the thing they ate. Um, the setting was the wilderness. That's where they were typically. And what John says about Messiah is almost, um, it's almost inferred rather than coming directly. He's, he's comparing himself to Messiah because people came thinking maybe this is it. And he's saying, no, no, the one who's yet to come is so much more powerful than I am. So let's remember he's powerful. He also was saying to them, and he's so exalted, or maybe the word is worthy. He's so much more worthy. Um, I I couldn't even, like the lowest of low would be for a a lowly servant to take off the ties of someone's sandals. That's a pretty lowly thing. He goes, I can't even do that for him because he's so exalted. So he's powerful. He's worthy or exalted. Um, and again, John the Baptist does do baptisms with water as a sign of cleansing, but he's saying, but he's going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that emphasizes Jesus' holiness. You know, that's one thing to sort of have the, the, the picture of clen- cleansing, but if you remember um, 
you know, in 1 John 1, uh, 9, where it talks about if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so it's only going to be by the Spirit that you're going to really have new life in Christ. So, so if you are, I guess John is saying to people, if you think that somehow you're coming to see me thinking Messiah, there is no comparison here. There's no comparison. Now, you can understand then why John, as he's plainly saying he's unworthy of equal standing with, uh, with Jesus, with Messiah, you can understand, and this is another, I'm not going to go into this, but I thought it was really interesting to read all the baptismal accounts in the Gospels. So Matthew 3, which gives another Gospel presentation of baptism, you can understand then why John, it says, tried to deter Jesus from being baptized by him. I think he said something like, you're going to baptize, you want me to baptize you? You know, I should, which should be the other way around. And you can understand that. But Jesus says this, let it be so now, for it is proper to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So what, what does, what does that mean in terms of why would a perfect and holy Messiah, which is Jesus, who never sinned, why would he get baptized? Which is, as we said before, that's, um, that's what happens when one is repenting of their sin and wanting to live this new life unto God. Um, I thought that was a really interesting thing to think about. Um, and Sinclair Ferguson, I thought, did a really good job of giving a couple reasons, so I'm going to go through those. The first one was, uh, uh, Dr. Ferguson says, the baptism of Jesus marked his public inauguration as Messiah. And I thought, yeah, that makes sense. And then he said this pretty deep thing. It's a ministry which would reach its fulfillment, the baptism, after Jesus' baptism in blood on the cross. So again, what is it? Baptism is immersion, okay, in something. And I thought that was that was kind of really very sobering, you know, that Jesus was going to go through a baptism of suffering uh, through blood. And it even says in Luke 20, um, sorry, Luke 12, 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. He knew that baptism into suffering and death was coming. Secondly, in baptism, Jesus identifies with us. He identifies with humanity. If you look in the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of talk about him being our high priest, and that's a representative that's really identifying with us. So since he's definitely not a sinner, but Sinclair Ferguson says, he had come to stand where sinners should stand and to receive what the sinners should deserve. And in return, he would give to these sinners the gift of grace and fellowship with God. So it's it's that high priestly representative. Thirdly, by being baptized, Jesus showed his truly, he was being consecrated or committed unto God, you know, this this life now, this this public ministry, you know, this is what Jesus is publicly saying, I am here to do the will of the Father. And then this is just an interesting thing. Again, another baptismal story, if you look in John, the Gospel of John, verses 32 to 34 are very interesting. It's in quotes. I just noticed that for the first time. So it says, and John spoke these words, and it's in quotes. So you wonder, who heard this? I'm assuming Andrew and... John probably did, because remember, they're the ones that John the Baptist said, oh, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they were like, oh, let's follow him, you know. So he must have said this, because it's in quotes. And what he says is something like, I'm not going to say it perfectly, but he says something like, I would not have known who this was 
except the one who told me to baptize said, when the spirit as a dove comes upon him and remains on him, that is the one, and he is the son of God. So at the baptism, there is a public announcement, which is, I just thought it was kind of cool, that if anybody's around John, he's like, and here he is, the son of God. And that's pretty clear. Obviously, the Pharisees weren't there, weren't listening, but that's a public announcement of the arrival as Messiah and that he's the son of God. Now, what what kind of um, things, when it goes on to verses 10, 11, what affirmed and helped Jesus' uh, identification as Messiah and confirmation from God? Um, I read this, and it's kind of interesting. They said, during those 400 years between Nehemiah and the birth of Christ, there were many who commonly believed, many Jews who commonly, commonly believed, that that cessation, that, that stopping, having no great Old Testament prophets, me, meant the Holy Spirit had sort of left town. He ceased speaking to God's people. Um, in other words, if there's no prophecy, there's sort of an absence of the Holy Spirit. So this, there's three signs that sort of are, are shown to affirm Jesus' call. The first one was they say heaven is torn open. You know, it says he sees heaven torn open um, and God's spirit comes. But that rending of, of heaven, however that looked, and I don't understand it, but John saw it and Jesus saw it, that rending of heaven, that word is S-C-H-I-Z-E-I-N. Sounds German to me, schizein, schizein. And what it means is a cataclysmic demonstration of power. Interestingly enough, that word is only used in Mark one other time when the temple curtain is ripped in two. Now, both of those renderings, both of those tearings, the tearing, so the spirit comes down, and the tearing of the curtain were validations that this is Messiah, this is the Son of God. That hadn't happened for anybody else. The second sign was when the seal of approval was when the Spirit himself comes in it. And it says, like a dove. Um, so we're assuming there was a, a visual. And he comes and remains on, descends upon and remains on Jesus. And that too is an interesting. There's a lot of echoes in this chapter of Old Testament. Um, because that is often like when you remember Noah, um, when the water started going down with Noah and his ark, he sent out a dove, Right? He sent a dove over the waters. Why was that? Well, the dove was going to be sort of helping to affirm this, the new start or the new creation. And so um, I liked how this was said. Uh, it says, the dove was a symbol of God's new creation as if God were saying, in Jesus, Jesus is the one in whom I shall begin again. You know, he's not, it's not, creating something completely new, but it's a new way of salvation. It's the dawn of salvation. Um, and then the third seal was the voice of God, which, you know, you've heard that maybe in, um, was it in Acts where he said something loud to Paul? Some people just heard thunder, so we don't know who heard what, but the voice of God affirms Jesus' identity. What does he say? You're my beloved son, the one in, with whom I'm well pleased. And that has echoes even. The echoes are three Old Testament passages. You probably have that in your, sometimes your Bible would say what those were. The first, if, if you think about it, you've heard this before. So then, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love. Where's that from? That's Abraham with Isaac. You know, that's that God asking him to say, will you be willing to give up the one you love? And so this, uh, my beloved son is from that or echoes that. 
Psalm 2, verse 7, um, that's when David was installed as king. And in that, God speaks and says to the king, You are my son, and today I have become your father. And then lastly, in Isaiah 42, verse 1, there's a, there's a verse that says, here, here is my servant whom I, am upholding, whom I uphold. And it says, he's my chosen one in whom I delight. So all of those things that have been spoken by God in the Old Testament are now being spoken together over Jesus. So Jesus is the son of God. He is the king in this new kingdom that's coming to earth. And he's so loved and delighted in by the father even though he's a son, he's also a servant of God. And that servant will be struck struck down, in a sense, by God, pierced for our iniquities, and the punishment that will bring us peace is upon him. You know, that's from Isaiah 43. So all those things are true. And, and just an application question here, I was thinking, do you and I realize that we too are, as, as we are in Christ and Christ is in us, that we have the same derived identity and derived approval and delight from the Father, that we are the beloved of the Father. And in Christ, we are well-pleasing. I always think to myself, I I know that, but I think, what if every day I got up and um, really said, today I'm going to believe that I am his beloved, that I am well-pleasing in his sight, that he delights over me. I think that's, that'd be a good exercise for me every day, you know, to then go out and do what I do because I believe that identity. Um, verses 12 to 13 is interesting. As this, this wonderful thing has just happened, especially what the Father said, it says the Spirit of God is with Jesus, drives him out, pretty strong word, into the wilderness uh, for 40 days to be tempted, or I say tested by Satan. Um, Edwards says this, the spirit that empowers the son for ministry now will test him or allow him to be tested to determine whether he will use his divine sonship for his own advantage or rather will he submit himself in obedience to God. Now you have to know that when you hear that those things, something has to click with you, kind of click with me. I couldn't figure out where it was. I had to look it up. But okay, he's going into the wilderness. It's, it's a 40 number, you know, 40, it's 40 days, not 40 years. And he's going to be tested. Um, Now, that's interesting, but there's a parallel there so much because in the Old Testament, there's a place right around the time of um, when, uh, you know, Pharaoh was being asked to let the people go. Exodus 4.23, God said, and this 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 is what the Lord says, Israel, my people, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, Pharaoh, let my son go. So, so there's that, that sort of parallel. And then it says in Deuteronomy 8, 12, he's saying this to the, to the people, um, Moses is. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert. There's the first other parallel for these 40 years in order to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. There's also the parallel that says, it says after that, and he humbled you, causing you to hunger. That's like Jesus, right? He hasn't not going to be eating anything, so he's got that on top of everything else. And the reason I think this is so interesting is it makes it clear that certainly the, the purpose of the wilderness uh, period for Jesus was that he would face and conquer those particular temptations involved in his calling as Messiah 
before he would begin his his task. Yet he also says, the commentator says, but Israel, who was God's child, where Israel had failed in the desert, Jesus, God's son, would triumph. So part of what I think you see in these verses is there's always this looking back and looking here and remembering the big picture and then coming to see that this is a new time with Jesus. Um, The only application I could think for this personally was, yeah, when we say yes to a a particular anointing or call, maybe you get a, a role of ministry and you think, oh, this is going to be great. You know, that's true. It is is wonderful that you step out in faith and that you say, I'm going to do this in obedience. But understand, it also may lead you into real places of temptation and suffering. You know, we were on the mission field just for six years, but I do remember Meredith has often said, and out of that time, there was a particular period of time, I think it was like two to three years at the beginning, he said, those are the hardest years of our lives. I mean, and I I know I, I hadn't always said it that way, but I'm like, yeah. It was, it, was, it was exciting and thrilling. We knew we were doing God's will, but I think sometimes you think it's just going to be so great. And, and it is great, but it doesn't mean it's without its challenges and temptations and sufferings. Um, I'll just say one little thing about this little, there's a little thing in there. No other gospel has it. You know, he was out in the wilderness, Jesus was, and he was with the wild animals. Do you remember that? Mm. Different people say different things about that, but I liked the way Sinclair Ferguson explained it, he said, since there was the first Adam who, like Israel, kind of failed, um, and he was in this garden, and he kind of had everything going for him. The animals were sort of under his, he named them, you know. And it says, but Jesus, as the second Adam, in order for him to reverse what Adam, the first Adam, had done, Jesus need to enter into the world not as Adam had found the garden, but as Adam had left it. So instead of Jesus being tempted in some kind of beautiful garden, tame garden, he was surrounded in this wilderness with wild beasts. And I just had never thought of that. I had never thought that, you know, I pictured Jesus being hungry, being famished, and Satan coming. But then I think about scorpions or vipers or other wild animals on top of everything else. And he, he didn't cave. You know, the opposite of Adam, the first Adam, had everything, and he failed. But here's Jesus. And it does say, and I'm thankful that, um, and the angels ministered to him, you know, that God wasn't, God was going to provide also for him in that hard place. Um, so now we get to the part I love the best. Um, verses 14 and 15, this is kind of the, you know, where Jesus is declaring uh, the, his, he's begun his ministry. And the interesting thing there is it says, how does it say it? It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus began proclaiming the kingdom of God is, is at hand. And, you, you know, that, that timing is kind of, that's said there for chronos time, meaning, meaning it's more like a, this is, this is the way it happened. When John, because of God's, even God's sovereign plan of him saying no to Herod and him being arrested, when that happened, that was sort of like the go-ahead for Jesus to begin uh, stepping out into public ministry. It's not that Jesus wasn't upset or concerned for John. If you read in Mark 6, verses 7 to 30, he was greatly disturbed by it. Um, But this is just saying that timing. This happened with John, and so Jesus begins. And again, I'll say, um, 
Jesus begins saying this, this very important thing, the time is fulfilled. And it's fulfilled for God's reign on earth because his kingdom, his reign, his reigning over everything, it's at hand. It's, it's near. Um, and that word, kairos, again, that Greek, in the Greek language, kairos, uh, is a definitive appointed moment of history, this, this coming from God, which is bringing in the dawn of salvation. And that's very different than chronological time. I was saying to a person, I wish I had a, a good example. I was talking with this person, and we were both saying, oh, this would be helpful. If, it's like if someone says chronos time is like a pregnant woman, and you say, well, what time is it? And she goes, oh, it's, you know, quarter to eight. But if she came into the room and said, it's time, it's time, you would know that this is going to change everything, that the time she's talking about is this momentous thing that's happening. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, this is the fullness of time. This is happening now. I just think that's amazing. And, and I, I, this is the challenge of this. It says um, in Edwards, James Edwards' commentary, the arrival of God's kairos demands a change in one's thinking. The new and unparalleled possibility presented to humanity in the gospel now calls for unique response, which demands decisive change. And that's why Jesus goes on to say, repent, Yes, turn from your sin, as John said, and believe. Now they, they need to be turning from that, but turning to him so that they would, um, the, the momentous, decisive changes, will you now live for me instead of living for self? And that um, makes sense as he's saying, repent and believe. And it is this momentous, it's demanding some kind of a, a decision but the very next thing that Jesus does in the next four verses is he uh, begins to call his disciples. He calls them to service and into community. Because when Jesus bids them to follow him, they too have to make a decisive change. How are they going to live now? Where is Christ going to be in terms of how they're thinking about Christ? In a sense, this call from Jesus to Peter and Andrew, to James and John, is kind of their kairos, right? It's their time when this is going to change everything. It's when they're choosing to leave their uh, vocation or livelihood as fishermen, family and friends in a sense too, and they're going to walk in Jesus' ways and the whole direction of their life is going to change. Sinclair Ferguson says uh, this about that. In principle, the challenge is the same for all of us, even though we're not leaving our fishing boats. Um, Christ's call and his kingly reign over our lives does mean that from that point on, they and we are no longer at our own disposal. And then he went on to say, one might think of my family and my occupation or, or even what about my profitable business venture? Because James and John, it seemed like their father had servants to help them. So that was a pretty big business, I guess, if he hired people. But he says, Ferguson says, but right, but then, at this point, all must now be at the disposal of Jesus Christ. So I was thinking about that, you know, how, how would that be for them? They, they're still sinners, they're, they're still, you know, struggling. But something had to shift in them where they might have to just get up in the, in the morning or through the day and think, okay, what do you want of me now, Lord? Right? That's that. They have to be open and they have to be willing to ask that question. 
because they're no longer their own. You know, they're, they belong to him. They're with him. They have to be willing to say, how can I follow you right now in the here and now? And to close, I'm going to tell you a little story. It's a short story of what happened to me last Wednesday when I was all caught up in my chronos, chronological time, my watch time. But God was sort of letting me have a, a almost hidden sort of a kairos moment where he broke in uh, with the love of Christ, which is amazing. So Wednesday was a really busy day. I had the Bible study. I think I met with someone after that. Then I had a 315 doctor's appointment over in Phoenixville, which is like, what, 40 minutes. And then I had the appointment, and I had to get back. And I was thinking, oh, good, I just can go to dinner. And I was like, rats, I forgot. I have to get lettuce. I had $3 in my purse. And I thought, oh, the best, I I look for good lettuce. And a lot of places don't have it. And Walmart has really good lettuce. Three remains for $2.28, in case you're interested. And it's a local place. And so I, I go in there thinking, oh, this will be great. You know, I, I left at 4.15, and I probably got there at quarter to five, and I'm, I was just thinking in my own head. And I come in, I'm like, oh, my goodness. And it was like, what did I say before, like a revival at the Jordan River? It was like thousands of people. That's how it felt like to me. I was like, and I just have to get one thing. So I go over, and I get my lettuce, 2.28, yay. And I come in, and I realize that the short line, which I would normally do, which is the self-checkout, no cash. And I'm not going to put 2.28 on my card. So I say, well, that's ridiculous. So I go to stand in line. And as I go, I'm thinking, well, this isn't so bad. Because you know you have the cashiers here, and then you have this this big open area. And I say, oh, I see some people there. And I go up, and you realize, oh, wait, the line is not ending there. You look over here, and it's all the way down in the clothing. And you're like, oh. Okay, so I'm complaining. I'm kind of grumpy. And so I go, one thing, we're grocery store. I get the line. I'm standing in line with my lettuce. I'm probably seven or eight people, you know, back. But I'm thinking, okay. And so I see three or four that are in front of me. And I'm sort of, and the woman in front says, I can't believe they're not opening. And I said, I know, right? And so we're just sort of talking about that. And, and after a while, finally, my spirit settles because I figure I'm going to be here for a while. I think I was there for like 25 minutes. or It's ridiculous. But anyway, I needed the lettuce. So I'm standing there and I thought, it's probably because of the study, but it probably wasn't even me. It was probably the spirit. But it was like, okay, Lord. What do you have me here for? And I don't even normally ask that, but it was a good question. I thought, thank you, Spirit. And I'm standing there, and I start thinking, well, you know, there's a cashier, and everybody hates being in line. They're probably grumpy. So I pray for the cashier, and I see a family with, like, four kids. I'm like, oh, I pray for them, because that's not easy with, you know, kids in the middle. It's almost the dinner hour. And so I'm just standing, and I'm, you know, holding my lettuce. And the woman in front of me, um, I started to notice her. Mm. She and this all happened quickly, but she was like this on her cart, and she had a daughter who was like 13, and you you couldn't help but notice the daughter. She had special needs, and I don't know. I couldn't see her completely afraid face. It might have been Downs, but I don't know. But she was doing this, kind of moving back and forth, kind of just like a a rhythm, you know. And every now and then, if you, if you heard somebody say, "Hey, how you doing?" she'd say, "Hey," or if somebody said, "Thank you," she'd go, "Thank you." And she was, you know, she had, and, and she was very quiet. And the mom was standing there, like on this, and and I started to just pray for them, mom and daughter. And she'd look over and she'd say, "Hey, come here." And so the girl came over, and she, you know, fixed her. She tucked in her shirt and fixed this, and and then didn't say anything. And the girl went back, you know, just kind of doing her self thing. And and I was thinking, oh, just sweet. And then later another time, the mother, you know did her barrette or something, and 
I just was thinking, and I said, actually, I said to the because the girl was, and I said, I said, must be nice to have somebody care so well for you, huh? And she said, huh? And and I thought, you know, and the mom turned, and we 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 had t- chatted about one or two other things, and then the line moved forward, and we went into the cashier area, and I, she was right in front of me, so I was behind her, and. The, the young woman was pretty amazing, wasn't whiny, wasn't anxious, was, you know, moving, but she was at peace because I think this mom was so present with her. And I, I noticed that, you know, because it's 25 minutes in line. And my heart was just um, touched. And so I, I ended up, I think they had to stop or something So because I, I was after them. But when I walked out the door, I... I couldn't have not said this. This was just in my heart. And I said, you know, I said to the mom, I said, you know, it was hard to wait all that time, but it was very sweet to see you love your daughter. And she stopped and she looked at me like she she was here and she looked at me. She looked at me and she said, thank you. And I said, he sees this, you know, he sees. And she smiled and I left. Now I'm going to tell you that, that I went in there totally thinking chronological. Oh, I've got dinner. Doggone it. You know, how long is it going to take? How long am I going to be in line? Oh, I can't believe I'm in line. Why don't they, you know, and because I had the time and it slowed down and it was quiet, nobody, you know, you're just standing there. It was like God was saying, can you see, can you see something here that's, that's my timing? It, it's sort of like that verse in Corinthians about the scene the the seen is temporary, but the unseen is eternal. So I don't even know. Meredith said, "What's your closing?" I said, "I don't even have one." But I but I but I can tell you this. I can tell you this. That's not typical with me at all. That's not a typical occurrence. But you know what this said about we're at Christ's disposal. I, I would challenge you, like I'm challenged. What if you and I did say that in a store when we're waiting in traffic when we wake up? Lord, I'm at your disposal. What is it you would have me to be about now, here, you know, with my neighbors? Because um, I think that's, I think there are a lot of those Kairos moments um, that God has for us because of Jesus. So let me pray for that, for all of us. Lord, I thank you for that, that very short uh, time that was sort of, sort of weighty with just seeing that tender, sweet, uh, care and love of that mom for that daughter. And we don't know their story, Lord, but I do think you see those things, and I do think they matter. And I think I think they matter for us, too. So would you help us with the hiddenness of your what you're doing and, and how we are to be your followers? Um, because, Lord, we... We rush around, and we're all about the chronological time or progressive time, and your time is is different, Lord, and your agenda is so much better. And I would pray for my sisters here as I pray for myself. Would you slow us down? Would you help us to hear and to see things that are unseen and hidden? And would you help us to really be your followers um, like we read in Mark? And we just thank you, Lord, for your work in us, despite us sometimes. And we pray that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.